I think Albert probably led the league in smashing stuff with bats uh, beyond baseballs. That's reporter Bob Dyer. He's talking about a baseball player named Albert Bell. There are a few things to know, but first know this. Albert Bell was an amazing baseball player. There's no shortchanging that here. He did everything well. He could play the outfield well, he had a good arm, he could run, and he was a smart, canny player in every aspect of the game. But more than anything, Bell was especially fearsome at the plate. He was one of the most dominant hitters of his era, period. Albert Bell could tear the seams off a ball with a single swing, and did so with frightening consistency. Bell was consistent in another way. He was a miserable person to be around. He could be hostile to everyone, fans and critics alike. I'm Spencer Hall. From SB Nation, this is It Seemed Smart, a series of stories from the world of sports that seemed smart to somebody at the time. Bob Dyer worked for the Akron Beacon Journal in the 1990s. He's retired now. In his job covering the Cleveland Indians, Bob ran into Albert Bell often enough to come to a succinct and brutal conclusion about the hitter. Albert Bell was a wonderful athlete and a loathsome human being. Bell was an erratic personality who hated the fans. He used to be known as Joey Bell, and when he went through this transformation to quit drinking, he started calling himself Albert Bell. Shortly after he renamed himself Albert, there was some drunken fan in the outfield behind him singing, Joey, Joey, and asking him to have a beer and just riding him. So Albert turns around, throws this thing, and drills the guy right in the chest. They did one thing that tripped his trigger accidentally. He'd throw balls at him. He sometimes hated awards his teammates got. Indian shortstop Omar Vizquel told Bob Dyer about a time when Bell took out his frustrations on a joke of a trophy he kept in his locker. The uh, Indians had this home run hitting contest one day, and Omar sort of jokingly said, hey, put me in it. But somehow he won this contest between a handful of the Indians, and he got this little trophy. And he's so proud of it, he put it in his locker room. And one day, after Albert had a bad game, he came in and he was smashing stuff, and he smashed the trophy that Omar had and knocked it apart and uh, never apologized. Bell's unpleasant behavior was tolerated because of his talent and also because the 1994 Indians were winning. This was unusual. The Cleveland Indians weren't historically a good baseball team. In the 13 seasons leading up to 1994, the Indians had posted losing records in 12 of them. But in 1994, the Indians were really good. Albert Bell, Kenny Laughlin, and rookie Manny Ramirez in right field. This Skell and Bayerga, great team up the middle. Kenny Laughlin were there. They had good veteran starting pitchers like Jack Morris and Dennis L. Presidente Martinez. The Indians' defense was anchored by not one, but two gold glove winners center fielder Kenny Lofton and shortstop Omar Vizquel. The entire lineup, top to bottom, could hit. But no one in the lineup could hit like all-star right fielder Albert Bell. Deep in the left center field. Way back. Good one. But the fence looks up. And you can put it on the board. Yes! A two-run blast by Albert Bell. And it's an 8-1 ball game. Robert, number 33. Bell hit for power and average, like few other hitters of his era. And just 101 games in 1994, 
he recorded 36 home runs and 101 RBI. The following season in 1995, he'd hit 50 and post a 690 slugging percentage. He wasn't just good when he was good. He was, for a few seasons at least, great. The Indians' newfound success was so surprising that Bob Dyer, normally a general assignment reporter, was asked to cover the local response to the Indians' unprecedented success. He'd later write a book about all this with Omar Vizquel. Bob came to know the team pretty well. The 1994 Indians was a bizarre collection of people. I mean, all kinds of different personalities. Omar was easily, I mean, he was beloved by fans and teammates. He's just an easygoing guy. Vizquel wasn't the only one. Most of the Indians were well-liked. Carlos Baerga, Jim Tomei, Sandy Alomar Jr., they made rooting for Cleveland easy. Jacobs Field is ready. The Indians are ready. Expectations running high. Time for baseball, 1994 inside. Albert Bell, the power-hitting outfielder who made the Indians lineup a truly fearsome prospect for opposing pitchers, did not. And if you look at Albert Bell, obviously everything is fine. He just tore it up in spring training, a 381 average, hit six homers, led the majors with 29 runs batted in. And he has had a fantastic spring. And I talked to Albert earlier today. He said he's just glad to get home. He was in awe. The Indians started off the 1994 season by going just a little over 500 through May. They really took off in June, though, scoring 179 runs and going 18 and 9 in the month. They averaged 6.6 runs a game in that stretch bombing teams out of games before they could recover. Albert Bell alone hit 10 home runs and had 29 RBI in the month. Going into July, the Cleveland Indians were unlikely, but now obvious pennant contenders. On July 15, 1994, the Indians were playing the second game of a four-game road trip against the White Sox at Comiskey Park in Chicago. Well, Batgate was one of the more interesting episodes in uh, the history of the Cleveland Indians. It came in 1994 in the middle of a pennant race. The two teams were division rivals, and for the moment, they were tied atop the American League East standings in mid-July, with little time to spare. The game was crucial. Sure, baseball has a massive 162 games in the Major League season. How much could one game matter? A lot in this case. Because this is a division game. Each loss to the other takes a team down a full game back in the standings. Just a year prior to the Cleveland Indians' miraculous 1994 season, the 1993 San Francisco Giants had won a whopping 103 games, but still missed the playoffs. The Braves, the Giants' division rival, had won 104. Single-game margins happened and mattered more, especially because the wild-card slot and an expanded baseball playoff They didn't come into effect until the next year, 1995. So unlike most games for most teams, this game mattered. The stakes were real. Bell batted cleanup that night. When he came up to bat in the first inning in a scoreless game, White Sox manager Gene Lamont made an unusual request. He wanted the umpires to look at Albert Bell's bat. Maybe Lamont was tipped off by a bat boy or was just suspicious of the way the ball came off Bell's bat the game before. Maybe he just had a hunch... But for whatever reason, Gene Lamont thought Albert Bell was cheating. Specifically, Gene Lamont thought Albert Bell was using a corked bat. We should pause here to talk about corked bats, which sounds like a British insult more than a baseball cheat. Baseball has what might be the longest history of cheating in American sport. And not just regular type cheating. I mean flagrant, stupid cheating. Only the Tour de France really compares in terms of a flagrant disregard for the rules. 
The general idea is that you you saw the the very top off of a bat. You hollow out the middle, and you fill it sometimes with uh, a cork. Is is the very literal definition? But the idea is you want a lighter bat for quicker bat speed, which leads to better hit balls. Grant Brisby is a baseball writer for SBNation.com. He knows a lot about baseball, a lot about corking bats, and a lot about how corking a bat is a little bit of return for a whole lot of trouble. One of the the more uh, respected scientific looks into this says that it might help with singles, but it definitely doesn't help for power. In short, it's not a lot of gain for a whole lot of risk. Corking is illegal, and it'll get a player fined and suspended for a good chunk of the season. Back to the scene in 1994. The Chicago White Sox and Cleveland Indians are tied in the standings. Only one of them can go to the playoffs. They're playing games that are easily twice as important as any other game on their schedule. Games like a crucial stretch run game against a division rival, games where players and managers can leave nothing to chance. In the top of the first, with the Indians up 1-0, and the Indians' best hitter, Albert Bell, standing at the plate, White Sox manager Gene Lamont won't leave anything to chance. More specifically, he thinks Albert Bell is using a cork bat, and he wants the umpires to take a look at it. Exactly why isn't clear, but Lamont has more than a few reasons to be suspicious of Bell's equipment. Bob Dyer, again. I think one of the reasons they suspected the bat to be corked is that Bell was hitting titanic home runs and hitting them regularly. And I recall seeing him make some swings that I thought, how did that ball get out of here? In a high-pressure situation where managers have few options, Gene Lamont suddenly has options. The White Sox manager no longer just has to walk Bell or pitch to him. Instead, Lamont has a real opportunity to take the Indians' most dangerous hitter out of the lineup, maybe for more than just the one game, too. Not that he needed reminding, but Gene Lamont had a fresh reminder of just how dangerous Bell could be. The day before, the White Sox won the first game of the series 6-3, but watched as Bell crushed a two-run homer deep into the left-field seats in the top of the first inning. He could ruin a pitcher's day fast. There is a real chess game going on here. Gene Lamont has nothing to lose in asking the umps to look at the bat. If he's right, Bell is suspended by the league for 10 games. Lamont has turned his opponent's biggest strength into a weakness. Bob Dyer thinks Gene Lamont had another reason to ask the umps to look at the bat. Bell would also be rattled. I think probably in his mind, he thought worst case scenario is Bell gets upset and loses his concentration and and has a temper tantrum that they stole his bat. Lamont knew this wouldn't be solved quickly there would be an official process to an allegation of corking a bat. The bat wouldn't be certifiably corked until it got to the MLB offices in New York. In other words, this would not be an eyeball thing or a matter of subjective judgment by the umpires on site. This next part gets kind of CSI-ish, fast. When the manager goes out to the umpire and says, I think the bat is corked, the umpire's obligated to confiscate the bat and block it in the umpire's room, and then they send it off to New York to either x-ray it or cut it open. Those would be the offices of Major League Baseball on Park Avenue in New York City. It meant someone official from Major League Baseball would actually verify that it was tampered with and that Albert Bell was cheating. This is a big problem, and immediately, everyone in the Indians' dugout knows it. They're more than a little worried. 
several of the players in the Indians dugout knew that this was a problem because the bat was corked. And once the league found out about it, Albert would surely be suspended and they didn't want to lose their best player. Bell's bat goes back to the umpire's room at Comiskey. The umpires lock it inside, leaving the bat somewhere in the bowels of the ballpark. In the middle of a pennant race, the Indians' best player is about to be suspended for 10 games. 10 games the Indians can't afford to lose. Someone needed to do something to keep Albert Bell from getting caught with a cork bat. Something desperate and bold. Top of the first. The bat is confiscated by the umpires, but Bell who's only under suspicion of corking his bat at this point, is allowed to continue. He grounds out for the second out of the inning. Eddie Murray does the same for the third, and the Indians take the field as the White Sox come to the plate in the bottom of the first. For the players on the field starting that night, the game goes on. In the clubhouse, though, the rest of the Indians are determined to do something about the confiscated bat. The only person with a real idea is a starting pitcher named Jason Grimsley. Here's Bob Dyer. Jason Grimsley is not one of the players on that team who stands out. I don't remember him having a great personality or a bad personality. He's just one of the guys who was not prominent. The Indians are sitting around wondering out loud what to do. I bet I can get that thing because he realized the umpire's room was on the same level as the visiting locker room. And I'm not so sure if Jason Grimsley hadn't taken upon himself to retrieve the bat that anybody else would have jumped in and volunteered. Grimsley grabs a flashlight. He takes with him an unnamed accomplice, most likely a member of the Indian support team, though no one's ever confessed to this. Then Grimsley lifts a ceiling tile out of the way, clambers up onto a cinder block wall, and disappears into the dark innards of Comiskey Park. Like that. He just does it. I think he just did it. I mean, he was not going to get in the game. And uh, he, he, it just dawned on him that the visitor's clubhouse had these removable ceiling tiles. And he figured, so would the umpire's room. So I think he just, I don't know if he told anybody or not, but he took a flashlight and crawled up there. It's July. This is the unair conditioned space between the stands and the offices and the rooms beneath Comiskey Park. Whatever it was on the field, it had to be... 30, 40 degrees hotter up in the ceiling, crawling around in the bowels of the stadium. So this is not a pleasant endeavor. There's also the issue of Grimsley himself. He is not a small man. This is a Mission Impossible scenario, and Grimsley is a full head taller than Tom Cruise. A lot of this account comes from Buster Olney's reporting on Grimsley and the bat incident in the New York Times, where Grimsley first admitted stealing the bat, and from Grimsley's own account in the Fox Sports TV piece on the Great Bat Caper. Remember, this guy's six foot three. He takes his flashlight, climbs up on top of the 18-inch wide cinder block wall, and makes his way down to the umpire's room. This may have been the most impressive athletic feat of Grimsley's entire season. I mean, here's a guy who's 6'3", 180, and he's got to, first of all, he's got to navigate his way across this foot-and-a-half-wide cinder block wall, the interior walls, and not only do that, but carry a bat with him. He had the flashlight in his teeth as he moved along, and he knew sort of where he was going, but not really. Grimsley has about 100 feet to go between the visitor's locker room and the umpire room. There are utility pipes, ducts, wires everywhere. He's moving across the top of an 18-inch wide wall, and if he falls, 
he'll go straight through the drop tile ceiling to the floor below. The ceiling gets lower and lower until he's crawling on his belly to his first guess as to which spot is the ceiling of the umpire's room. Grimsley's wrong. When he lifts his first ceiling tile and takes a peek, he sees a groundskeeper sitting on a couch. Just the sound of a ceiling tile being nudged out of place, breaking the silence. The guy looks up, and he sees a million-dollar athlete climbing through the ceiling. And they just sit there for a minute before Grimsley slowly slides the tile back and pretends it didn't happen. And the groundskeeper does nothing. He could have spoiled the whole caper right then and there. Like Maybe he didn't believe what he was seeing, or maybe he just didn't want to know. Because if a professional baseball player is crawling through a ceiling, well, that's a problem way, way above the pay grade for a groundskeeper. Grimsley, still perched on that narrow wall, sweating and fortunate he hadn't been caught already, resets himself. He guessed wrong, but not by much. Grimsley moves the ceiling tile. He can see the top of a refrigerator where the umpires keep snacks and drinks. About 35 sweaty, tense minutes after climbing into the ceiling, he's where he's supposed to be. With the lift of another tile, he's found the umpire's room. Climbed down, first stepped on a refrigerator, and then got down to the floor and took Bell's bat and re- <laughs> replaced it with Paul Sorrento's bat and climbed back up again. And shortly after he got back up in the ceiling, he heard somebody come into the room. So he had to sit there very quietly for not a long time, but for long enough to be annoying. Oh, there was a very good reason why they didn't use any of Albert Bell's bats. All of Albert Bell's bats that weekend were corked. So they couldn't replace it with an Albert Bell bat. So he replaced it with a Paul Sorrento bat, as if nobody's going to notice the difference. (laughs) But there was this little problem. There was the Paul Sorrento autograph on the end of it. All this story is missing now is a hasty forgery job from Grimsley, where he crosses Sorrento's name out in Sharpie and writes in Albert Bell's in all caps. Grimsley leaves the bat there anyway. He doesn't dare linger in the umpire's room long. With Albert Bell's confiscated bat in hand, he climbs onto a refrigerator and back up into the ceiling. He even dusts his footprints away on the top of the fridge. At this point, Grimsley is well past the point of considering good ideas. He and his accomplice crawl back through the ceiling to the visitor's locker room. The umpires, as soon as they, after the game, they came in and looked and they said, wait a minute, <laughs> something's wrong here. I mean, you look at a bat that's autographed by Paul Sorrento after confiscating a bat signed by Albert Bell and you know something's rotten in Denmark. The Indians won 3-2 that night. The game took nine innings. Grimsley's trip through the locker room took four. It didn't take long to figure out what had happened in Chicago. Well, once the umpires figured out that this was a different bat, they started uh, raising hell and threatening the Indians with a full investigation with fingerprints and all that stuff. So after a while, the Indians fessed up and said, OK, here's Albert's bat. And they checked it out and it was indeed corked. When you're, when you're switching somebody else's bat with a name right on it, it's, pretty, it's hard not to identify it as a harebrained scheme. Hairbrained or not, the theft of a bat got a serious reaction from the league. There's a long history of cheating in baseball, sure. But like any other institution, Major League Baseball hates A, when its rules are broken, and B, when it's embarrassed publicly. MLB reacted to that embarrassment by taking the investigation of the bat theft very, very seriously. Umpire Dave Phillips described it as, quote, a break-in, unquote while White Sox chairman Jerry Reinsdorf called it, quote, a serious crime, unquote. 
It probably didn't help that Major League Baseball's commissioner, Bud Selig, was a huge fan of mystery novels and considered himself an amateur detective of sorts. Bob Dyer said at one point, MLB even talked about bringing in the FBI. When I interviewed Omar about five years later, he was falling on the floor laughing. Later, it was all funny, sure. But in the moment, Bob Dyer says the Indians were worried. I mean, they they knew the guy was going to get suspended. I mean, the whole premise just didn't fly at all. And Albert Bell still denied corking the bat. His explanation for how it all happened was clear. It made no sense, but it was definitely clear. He said uh, it was a conspiracy by the White Sox who stole some of his bats overnight and corked them and replaced them and then (laughs) framed him, which is laughable. The entire bat caper really only had one weakness. It was, in the end, very poorly and hastily planned. The feds never had to show up, mostly because it doesn't take an FBI agent to figure out that a bat labeled Paul Sorrento was not Albert Bell's. It doesn't take an FBI agent to notice a few ceiling tiles out of place and figure out what happened. The threat of the FBI helped move things along quickly, though. The Indians finally turned in Bell's bat to the MLB offices in New York City on July 18th. Officials x-rayed it, then sawed it open. They found a cork core concealed inside it. There was no defense against overwhelming evidence. Albert Bell was caught. Bell was suspended initially for 10 games, and then uh, they worked out a deal where he'd only have to sit out seven games. So it uh, did have an impact. On the night of the bat caper, the Indians won the game 3-2. to two. Actually, it's amazing how much of this ultimately didn't matter. The Indians were one game behind the White Sox when a player strike ended the season on August 11th. The playoffs and the World Series were canceled. Bell served his suspension over the first week of August. The Indians went 4-3 and three in those games. Not great, but not terrible. They averaged about 5.5 runs a game at the plate, though, so being down half a run during Bell's absence was a loss one could directly attribute to his not being in the lineup. Still, it didn't really affect the Indians that much in the grand scheme of the 1994 season. When the season ended prematurely because of the strike, the Indians were one game behind the White Sox in their division. The whole episode mattered even less in the grand scheme of things for the Cleveland Indians. Albert Bell came back to Cleveland for the 1995 season. The Indians made the World Series the next year and lost. Albert Bell put up MVP numbers, but lost out to the more popular Boston Red Sox player Mo Vaughn for the award. As for Jason Grimsley... The Bat Thief? A bunch of craziness happened to him afterwards, but barely any of it was related to the great Bat Caper of 1994. He got tangled up in the steroid and PED scandals of the 2000s and eventually stopped talking to the media at all. Uh, Completely unconnected, just a side note here, after Grimsley retired, he took his kids to school one day and a small plane carrying five people crashed into his house. He and his family were fine, but all five passengers in the plane died. Grimsley went on the record formally as the bat burglar with Buster Olney in that New York Times piece in 1999. Grimsley also spoke with Fox Sports about it for a short televised segment on the caper. Here's Bob Dyer. At that point, he was a pitcher in the Yankees, 
system, and uh, he finally confessed that he was the one who did it. Until then, it had not been publicly known. It was a well-kept secret for a long time. No one in baseball outside of the umpires seemed to have a serious long-term problem with it. In fact, Grimsley still gets raves for being a great teammate. Bell was so important to the team, and he wanted to uh, do whatever it took to have the team play better and win more. Did Albert Bell ever thank Jason Grimsley? Yeah, kinda. Grimsley told the Times that Bell bought him a round of golf. That might be as close to thank you as Albert Bell could get. Bob Dyer wrote a whole book with Omar Vizquel later. Omar! My life on and off the field, memoirs of a gold glove shortstop, was about Vizquel's career, not about the bad episode. But it's still in there for about 10 pages. Bell did not love that. The funny thing was that after the book came out, Albert went ballistic about us talking about his cork bat, denying he ever did it, when everybody in the world knew he did it. In 94, shortly after he did it, he issued a statement saying, I have never used or knowingly attempted to use a corked bat in a game. One of the things I think may have happened was that we said that all his bats were corked, meaning that weekend in Chicago, and I think he read it as everybody ever held in his hands was corked. So I think that might have been part of what set him off. But again, it was common knowledge that he'd use corked bats. Um, so I, I did not anticipate him going ballistic. But he called up Jim Rome's national talk show and went on and on about what a punk <laughs> Omar was, which uh, only helped the book sales. So uh, I wasn't too upset with that. Bell's on the, on the call-in line right now. Well, what else did he write about in the book? Yeah, that's the only well, thing why, so why far. You know what? Well, you know what? I'm sure he didn't write about all his escapades on the road and all his escapades in Cleveland, where him, his wife, and his kid live. Did he talk about that? Well, first of all, how does he know my bats were corked? Because you know, if he wouldn't spend so much time out chasing all the tramps around American League, then he would know about my uh, bat situation. And and since when did Omar become good enough? to write an autobiography. He hadn't done anything. Albert Bell retired from baseball in 2001. In his second year of eligibility for the Hall of Fame, he received 19 votes total for his selection out of a possible 520 votes, despite having numbers that are competitive with his Hall of Fame peers. Bob Dyer, meanwhile, rode the momentum of Bell yelling about him in public to solid book sales. He got a pretty nice car out of it. Omar had this yellow Porsche that he drove all over Cleveland at about 1,000 miles an hour, and he'd get pulled over, and the cops would go, oh, Omar, hey, just slow down a little bit, okay? So it was pretty cool. So I had this windfall, and I decided, well, you know what? Maybe I'll get a lesser Porsche. I got, like, the bottom-of-the-line Porsche, the Boxster. Dyer tells me since his book was published in 1997, he's only put 40,000 miles on the car. He takes it out during the summer months on joyrides. He's pretty proud of that Porsche. You can hear it in his voice. And he owes it, in part, to that fateful Cleveland Indian season and the cork bat incident. He even got custom plates made for the car. When it came time to get the plates, I said, all right, I'm going to go the full boat here and get vanity plates. So I ordered cork 13. 13 being Omar's uniform number. And the cork should be self-explanatory. Jonathan Hirsch is our show's producer. Nishat Kurwa is Vox Media's executive producer of audio. Thanks also to Elena Bergeron and Jen Holmes. I'm Spencer Hall, and I'll see you soon.